to Psalm 114. Psalm 114. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled, Jordan turned back, the mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains, that you skip like rams. O hills, like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. Well, we turn again to our uh, look at the Hallel Psalms, the, the Psalms that uh, have that sense of praise to God, and, and almost all, of, uh, apart from this Psalm really, uh, has that, uh, uh, that, those words, praise to the Lord. And uh, it, nevertheless, it, it's full of praise, isn't it? Uh, it? So this Psalm was read on the eighth day of the Passover. And it's truly seen by many commentators, as I was reading through this week, seen as a, a great work of poetry. Spurgeon called it poetry which has reached its climax. Uh, it's it's a, a beautiful, uh, poetic way of looking at the Exodus. And so Tim read for us the historical account there in Exodus 14, looking at the, the actual historical events that took place, um, there were no poetic flourishes, as it were. Uh, but Psalm 114 takes that uh, uh, um, Exodus 14 account and puts it in poetic form, as m many of the Psalms do, in showing the deliverance of God's people or showing the deliverance of an individual like David. And so this is what the psalmist is doing here in Psalm 114. He's describing in poetic form what Moses wrote historically in Exodus 14. And it's really building on what we saw last week uh, uh, on God who uh, controls sovereignly the whole universe. In other words, he is the way, one that makes a way for his people when there seems to be no way at all. And that is one of the things that you find throughout the scriptures. And that is something that we, ought, we are to apply to our own lives, that he is the God that makes a way when there seems to be no way. And I'm sure that many of you have found occasions like that in your lives where there seemed to be no way beyond the situation you're in, but that God opens up a way of deliverance. Well, he did that on a universal scale, on a, an, an amazing way in many occasions throughout the Bible, whether it was uh, in the life of Moses and the Israelites at the Red Sea, or David as he went up against Goliath and many of the nations. Uh, and in other places where uh, we were seeing, uh, as, again, as Jack was uh, showing to us uh, uh, a few weeks ago, with the, the exiles coming back 
into the land of Israel, God making a way where there was none before. And on and on it goes. That's the way in which God is glorified. And so whether it's a, a, a political bondage, whether it's nations going up against one another, or more importantly, and I think that this is what this psalm is really getting at, it's, there's a spiritual dimension here that is universal, that applies to each and every one of us. And that's what we really want to see. We want to see more than uh, um, the... Uh, Red Sea splitting apart, or the Jordan being driven back, or any of these things. We want to see, as was meant to, we, we have license to, to make that connection, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, Moses and Elijah there with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, speaking to him, talking with him, about the great exodus that he would perform on the cross. In other words, these are types and shadows of a more profound reality that is found in Christ. So what he does historically earlier on, he does poetically here in Psalm 114. And he focuses on two major episodes in the Exodus, each one about 40 years apart. The coming out of Egypt, so you've got the coming out of the land of Egypt, going into the desert, 40 years in the desert, now they're crossing over the border into the promised land, and another kind of uh, smaller Red Sea event happens when the Jordan is driven back. So you have the, the, an interval of about 40 years, uh, and they're um, uh, 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 kind of uh, bookmarked by these two uh, um, events. The first thing we want to see is God's salvation. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of strange language. We've seen in the, even just in the Psalms uh, how foundational that event was for the people of God. It was the defining event of the Old Testament, really. When God brought his people out and established them as a nation. He brought them out with a strong hand. He revealed his glory. And of course, those events were full of gospel significance. That's why, again, we have Moses and Elijah speaking to Jesus as they did. And so, uh, when Israel came out of Egypt, this was the greatest display of God's power in the Old Testament. Uh, his plagues upon Egypt. Uh, his dividing the Red Sea, providing for them manna in the wilderness for for 40 years, giving them water from the rock, and on and on it goes. Many other examples we could name. But for four centuries, they had endured hard slavery at the hands of their Egyptian taskmasters. And they cried out, and their cry came before God, and he remembered his covenant that he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, uh, it, they, they were delivered from this terrible situation. The house of Jacob from a people of strange language. That, that it, Isaiah tells us that that's a, a judgment of God to be in a, a, a place where you can't understand the language. Certainly later on, when the children of Israel went into bondage in Babylon, God said that for by my 
uh, for by people of a stra strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. In other words, God will judge his people Israel through the lips of these Babylonians, through strangers who don't speak their language, who don't share their values or don't know their ways. This was a mark of judgment upon them. And out of all of that, God brings them out. And of course, it is a picture of salvation. It's also a picture of sanctification and rule. Look at verse 2. Judah became his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. Quite a difference. Quite a stark contrast in going from uh, that land of darkness, that land of idolatry, that land of alienation where you can't understand the customs and the language of the people. Going from there, a people who are in bondage, in slavery, to now becoming the very sanctuary of the living God. Just overnight, there they were in bondage, in slavery. And then we look at that occasion that uh, was read for us, where they came out with a mighty, the mighty hand of God. And how does the psalm describe what they became? Judah became his sanctuary. And Israel, his dominion. A sanctuary is a place set apart by God for his own purposes, for his own worship. And here, what, what, what he, the psalmist is describing is really at the heart of who Israel are as a people. God set them apart from them, for himself to declare his praises. It's so wonderful that we see the same pattern in places like Ephesians chapter 2 with Paul. Paul says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. It, it, you know, following the prince of the power of the air. Uh, sons of disobedience. And then, but God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up together with him. That's just the moment we believe. Going from slaves and followers of the power of darkness, dead in trespasses and sins, down in Egypt, and then the moment we believe, made alive. He made us alive together with him and raised us up together with him. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace toward us who believe. It's, it's the same pattern. Again, you see, friends, these events really bear the hallmark of the Spirit of God in his own word. That these patterns that you see throughout Scripture tell us that this is not the musings of man, but that it comes from the very mind and heart of God. And that these themes that we find, even so far back as the book of Genesis and Exodus, are reintroduced for us, uh, as we were seeing in, in, in uh, our study of Ephesians. That new creation, the, new, the, the, the redemption that is affected by Jesus, and that, what that means now for the people of God. So Israel, Judah becomes his sanctuary. 
and Israel his dominion. He's, he's not really give, separating them as such. He's really emphasizing. Now, later on, Judah became the centerpiece for where God was worshipped, where Jerusalem was, and the temple was built there. But Israel, as the nation as a whole, were to be a people set apart for God as well. In Exodus 25, God says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So the nation, not just the building, but the nation, the people, become a sanctuary for God, or, or, a, a, a holy place for God. God, uh, Judah became his sanctuary, God's dwelling place. That theme, too, is taken up and, and, and uh, moved into the New Testament by the Apostle Paul when he says, for you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them. So what God was doing with Israel in bringing them out of Egypt, out of that land of darkness and idolatry and sin, into a, a, the promised land, and dwelling among them, he was making them a holy people. And he's teaching us as well that as he rescues us from the dominion of sin, we are to be different from those around us, different from the world around us. And as Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians, he talks about do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Don't imbibe the principles of the world, the way that the world thinks. And we we're kind of looking a little bit at that this morning, thinking in worldly terms about one another, which we, we dare not do. But this is what God intended for his people. This is how God is glorified. Not just in splitting the sea, not just in uh, doing all these miracles and judgments upon the Egyptians, but he's glorified most particularly as he comes and he makes his people, Israel and Judah, and you and I, his dwelling place. I will dwell among you. God with us. The, and then again, in, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory. Again, he's got echoes of, of Exodus there. The glory of God. What is it? The glory of God, full of grace. God comes among his people into his church. This is where his glory is seen preeminently. We didn't see the glory of God like Moses saw it or, or uh, some of these other people saw, uh, uh, seen it. But when we, when we come and we share in the things of God's grace, in God's truth, truly God's glory is among us. And we glorify God for his amazing grace to us. So we become his sanctuary. We also become his dominion. And you see two things here. We see the, the kind of the, the, the holiness aspect and the idea of God's law being established in our lives. Wherever God's sanctuary is, that's where his dominion is as well. It's the place where he exercises his authority. 
And so Jesus talks about the kingdom of God is, a, is among you. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is in your midst. This is what happened at the Exodus. The Lord created the nation of Israel. He gave them, a, a, he gave them his law, reflecting who he was. And that would that ought to have been for them a sense of great joy. Because they could they could see, of course, his laws are perfect. His laws. Look at what he did. He delivered us from the hand of Pharaoh. He's greater than Pharaoh. He demonstrated his power over Pharaoh and, and the gods of the Egyptians by putting them to open shame. Should we not follow this God? Should we not delight in this God? Should we as his people not truly be the place where his dominion is exercised and reflected with great gladness and joy? So now they have a king more powerful than any pharaoh. He's the God who overthrew the Egyptian king. Who really, if they were to really reflect upon it deeply, who really could touch them now? If they were faithful to their God. If they walked in his ways, there's nothing that they couldn't do. They should have been glad to be that dominion, the dominion of God. Of course, as we move that forward to the Lord Jesus, we see an even greater deliverance. Again, we're always hearkening back to that account on the Mount of Transfiguration, but it's so defining for us. It's so illuminating for us. Because if Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about the greater exodus, that then reflects upon us as those in whose lives the dominion of Christ is reflected. He didn't just overcome a, a nation state. He didn't just split the Red Sea or appear in a burning bush or any of these things. Jesus single-handedly on that Good Friday went up against the powers of hell and death. But more terrifyingly, he bore the wrath of Almighty God in his own body and in his own soul. He became a curse. He who knew no sin became sin for us. This is what Jesus did. He overthrew sin, death, he, he satisfied the wrath of God. He defeated the devil on the cross. Look at how Paul describes it. He delivered us from the dominion of darkness. You see the connections with Exodus there. He transferred us, translated us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So we become his dominion. We become his sanctuary. We become his dwelling place where he is magnified and praised and served and rejoiced in and delighted in. And so we see, even in the Lord's Prayer, those two elements coming together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. There you have the people of God as God's sanctuary, hallowing the name of God, hallowing His name in their lives, seeking to be holy as He is holy, 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. There you see the people of God being embodying the dominion of God. Just as uh, uh, the psalmist is saying here, Judah became a sanctuary, Israel his dominion. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. This is exactly what uh, the angel said to Mary, that the people of Israel being delivered from the hands of our enemies might serve him. Oh, I'm sorry, this is Zechariah speaking. Being delivered from the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Holiness, righteousness. His sanctuary, his dominion. And so, and so it goes throughout Scripture. And so we, we see that God saved them. God sanctifies them. God rules them. God protects them. Next, we see in verse 3, the sea looked and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams and the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains, that you skip like rams. O hills, like lambs. Many people see in the book of Exodus a return to the, the themes of Genesis 1 where God subdues the chaos and brings order out of the darkness. And that the Exodus reflects that again. And that the work of Jesus reflects it in an even greater way. As John begins his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he talks about light and life and all of these things. Again, a, re a, a, a retelling of the Genesis story. But here, the people of Israel are as they march out of Egypt, as the Egyptians have been judged. Now they meet with other obstacles. Now they meet with other enemies. The sea. And it strikes terror into the hearts of the people of God. Weren't there enough graves in Egypt? Couldn't we be buried there? Why did God drag us out here? Moses, why are we here to simply perish here? There's no way we can move forward. Again, he is the God who makes a way where there is no way. And so the, 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 uh, the psalmist says here, the sea looked and fled. He's personifying the sea, the Red Sea, as a, a scared little child who comes up against the God of the universe, the Red Sea. And pew, away it goes. There's my sound effect for the night. <laughs> away it goes. And it flees before the God. And, and that's what you see. The sea was driven back all night. It's, it, the, the psalmist is putting it in poetic terms in, in that the, the, the sea is running away from God. Likewise, the Jordan turned back. You 
you see someone driving up to a, a, you know, a, a roadblock or danger up ahead, what do they do? They turn their car around and they head the other way. That's what the Jordan did. As they were crossing over the Jordan, when the Ark of God passed over before them, and the River Jordan blocked up, it stopped flowing so that the children of Israel could walk across on dry land. The same happens again 40 years later. And it becomes a way through that which was previously impossible. He, he even goes on. The Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams. The hills like land. What could he be referring to here? Well, definitely one was at Mount Sinai when God gave his law. When the mountains shook. And there was those great noises and those terrifying scenes. But the mountain shook and trembled greatly, says the Bible. It could also refer to the, the, the advance of the children of Israel as they conquered this nation and that nation, the Canaanites and different nations in the land. But Paul, or the, the psalmist here, describes it as all creation coming to heal at the voice and the power of God because of his love for his people, because of his covenant commitment to them. And he's reminding them through song here, is there anything too hard for our God? Can our God not make a way through the most impossible situation that this world can throw at us? He begins to even mock the sea. What ails you, O sea? Don't you love that? What's your problem? That's it. That's, that's the Why are you so sick? Aren't you the mighty Red Sea? Aren't you the mighty Jordan? What? Why are you so ill-looking that you flee? Oh, Jordan, that you turn back. Oh, mountains, that you skip like rams. Oh, hills like lambs. What's gotten into you? There's this kind of scorn. You remember Elijah when he teased the prophets of Baal? Right? They, all day they cried out to their God, cut themselves, did all sorts, cried out. And Elijah begins to mock them. Maybe he's gone on a trip. Maybe he's gone to the washroom. Maybe he's taking a nap. Maybe all of these things. He mocks them. Because God's glory is about to be demonstrated and God answers from heaven with fire. God makes a way and immediately, for a time at least, what seemed impossible to Elijah is now possible. What seemed impossible to those faithful men and women in Israel at the time was now possible right before their eyes as fire fell from heaven and 400 prophets of Baal were slain right at that moment. And so there's this lightheartedness, this mockery on the part of the psalmist as he thinks back to these insurmountable obstacles that lay in the way of God's people that caused them to tremble, that caused them to wish they had just died back in Israel, rather than meet this terrible end. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel that 
you found yourself in situations where there was no way forward. Maybe you feel like you're in that situation now. Paul picks up that same kind of spirit as we read in uh, that wonderful chapter of Romans 8. As he is thinking through, again, the greater salvation that Jesus accomplished. And he begins to ask the similar questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It's all these questions. And he's going up against the accuser of the brethren. Who is to condemn? Can the devil condemn? Can the devil bring us down? No. Christ, Jesus, is the one who died. More than that, was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? These are obstacles, aren't they? These are things that strike terror into the heart of the best of us. Paul says, well, it's true. We, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It's true. No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors who we loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. I wouldn't have thought to include something like that. Height nor depth. Or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's doing the same. He's dragging them in one by one. Can you separate me from the love of Christ? Can you separate me from God's love? No, you can't. Height, depth, things, present things to come. Yeah, we're sheep to be slaughtered. But yet we're still, in all of these things, more than conquerors than him who loved us. What ails you? Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? What ails you, oh, grave? What ails you, oh, death? You're impotent now. You have no power. The grave has lost its terrors. Death has lost its, its sting, its, its power to, to, to terrorize. Because Jesus has taken the sting out. What ails you? confidence God's children have. That's got the confidence God's children have as they rehearse the great works of God. And as we preach the gospel to ourselves each and every day, we say, what ails you? We look at everything that comes up against us. Even the sin in our own heart. Even our own moral failure. We can look at that and say, what are you before the grace of God? Where sin abounds, grace does all the more abound. We tremble not for him, says Luther. We tremble not. This is the confidence the Bible gives us. He protects us. He also, lastly, provides for us. 
Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. He just throws in a miracle at the end. Who turns the rock, a rock, hard, unyielding. What does he do? He turns it into a pool of water. This, of course, is that glorious picture of Jesus, as Paul clearly tells us. They drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. You see, we get a hint into what it costs God to make that way, don't we? We're not to think of God simply sitting in heaven, commanding all things from his throne in heaven, telling the sea to split or telling the rocks to yield water. But no, friends, he is glorified in more than all of that. As the God who himself comes, the word made flesh, living for us, dying for us, hanging on a cross, being crucified, dead and buried, rising again for us. He made a way, but what, at what cost? At what cost did he make that way? That's why, as I said, Moses and Elijah, they say, look, what, what happened with us was small potatoes. That was just water being separated by God. But they wanted to talk to Jesus about what he was going to do. The way that he was going to make for, the, for his people who saw no way How could God be just and still let these people go? How could he be just and still call them his inheritance? Jesus said, here I am, send me. I will make a way. The new and living way that the writer of Hebrews talks about through his flesh, through his blood, through his death, through his suffering, through his tears. That is the new and living way that God has made. Jesus gives us himself. He, when we believe, fountains of living water are opened up within us. He is the manna of God that comes down. When we eat of that flesh, when we eat of him by faith, we live. And so the he, he finishes, tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. In other words, worship is our only uh, uh, calling, as it were. Worship is the only alternative. Worship is the only course that we must take. We fall down before Him. As, as it was with so many through the Bible, what could they do but worship? What could they do but fall down? As Thomas His unbelief was driven away, and he says, My Lord and my God. How wonderful for us. And this this is what we are called to. This is the God that we are called to worship. And what the Psalms is doing here is not only reflecting in poetic terms what happened in the Exodus, but prophetically looking forward to the cross of Christ as God deals with all those obstacles that stood in the people's way in a more profound way, 
And He makes a way through the sea. He makes a way through the land. He makes a way through death itself. So that the people of God can stand and look everything in the face, whatever this world has to throw at us, and say, what ailed you before this great and gracious and loving God? Let us pray.